Hi, welcome to West Edmonton Christian Assembly, and thank you for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. Okay, so as you can tell from the video and the title on the screens, we are in our summer series Q&A, answering the questions and or the topics that you are interested in. And for those of you who might be here for the very first time, we got started last weekend. And really, this is a continuation of this summer series, but it's kind of a sequel to last summer because we did a series last summer called Q&A, but we had such an overwhelming response of questions uh, last year and this year. There was well over 100 between the two different seasons that we thought, well, maybe we'll do a sequel and we'll try to cover a few more questions and we'll look at a few uh, more topics that that would be of interest to our congregation. It's challenging for multiple reasons. One of the reasons is the diversity of questions and interest that lies in the different topics. There would be people here who would be interested in a particular topic that to someone else in the congregation, that is of little or no interest, quite frankly. And there would also be uh, questions that some people would know lots about, and they've heard many messages on the question or the topic. There would be other questions or topics that would be brand new for different people. We have a very diverse congregation, which is what makes Weka so wonderful and makes Weka what it is, is the diversity of culture, personality, um, male, female, children, youth. We've got everything from the cradle to the grave. So we've got lots of questions. To be frank and to be honest, some of the questions you could build an entire series around one question or one topic, virtually impossible to really answer the question well, rightfully, respectfully, uh, without more than one message. So we might spend more than one message on a particular question or topic. But thank you to all of you who submitted the questions and uh, who looked at the topics. And I would say this. Even if your question is not answered or the topic is not covered, my hope and prayer would be that any time a message is spoken from the pulpit, the table, that it would be useful, in particular if it involves God's word. I love this verse in 2 Timothy 3.16. The kids learn it from a young age at Wee College. All scripture is God-breathed. In other words, it finds its origin in that which is divine which is what makes scripture so much different than other pieces of literature. And it is useful. So it doesn't mean it's always invigorating or entertaining or inspirational or some of these other things intriguing and these things are all good. But the thing we need to realize about the Bible, God's word, scripture, is that most of all it's useful. And quite frankly, in the world in which we live, we could use a little bit more of that which is actually useful. Useful for society, useful for the world in which we live, useful for people in their everyday lives. So all scripture is useful. Useful for what? Well, the second part of the verse says it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, regardless of the question of the topic. It can be useful. So essentially it's useful in three ways. One teaching, that would be instructing us in God's ways. We'll go to that next slide. Instructing us in God's ways according to God's worldview. So the reason we need teaching, the reason we need to be in life groups, the reason that we need to do some personal Bible study, the reason that we need to read some good books, the reason that we need to be here on the weekends or somewhere else in church is because it's another opportunity 
to be instructed in God's ways so that we can live and have a worldview that aligns with God. Well, what's the second thing? Scripture can be good and useful for rebuking and correcting. That would be confronting us when our thoughts or actions are contrary to his word and his ways. And let's be honest, we're no different than our children or our grandchildren. Sometimes we need correction. And sometimes when we're taught God's word or we're learning God's word on different questions, different topics, we're stopping and saying, well, hold on here. I, I didn't realize that. I, I haven't been living that way. With God's help, I need to correct my ways and make a change. So rebuking and correcting important. And then training in righteousness. In other words, preparing us to live lives that are righteous. That would be right living in God's eyes. So this is how, not exhaustive, not limited, but these are some of the primary ways that all scripture can be useful. So obviously my hope this morning is that in the topic for today, and I'm going to cover it today and then next weekend as well, I hope that the scripture will be useful in one of those ways uh, to us and for us. So there were a couple of questions that were submitted between last year and this year. And the two questions that were submitted that I'm going to try covering are these two. What are the reasons for paying tithes and offerings? So when that little wicker basket, plastic wicker, I think, when that is passed down through the aisles or the chairs and people are putting cash or envelopes or checks in there or when people leave the service or before the service starts, they head to the connection center and the debit machine comes out and they use their debit card and they make contributions or they pull out their phone and they do a push pay or they text some contributions or they come into the office and they line up these uh, electronic transfer of funds. Wh whatever the method is, why do we do that? What's the reason? Is it just because, well, we've always done it. I don't know what we're doing. My, my mom and dad did it. I do it. I, we shouldn't just do things robotically or mindlessly. But we should recognize that our actions and our act is actually anchored in something that hopefully emanates out of uh, biblical passages and biblical text. The second question th that was submitted is this one. I'm living paycheck to paycheck. How and or should I even tithe? So maybe you're here this morning and I'll touch a little bit more probably on that next weekend. But things are tight. Quite frankly, at the end of the month. You look at the checkbook, you look at the bank balance, there's really not much there, if anything at all. And in fact, maybe it goes into the negative territory. So you're thinking to myself, like, how am I supposed to contribute to God's work? Should I even contribute? Those are great questions. So I want to begin by thanking those who submitted those questions. And uh, there would be a whole a gradient or continuum of where people would be on these particular questions and on this topic. For example, there would be people in our congregation who would know a significant amount about the word tithing and about what it means, what it doesn't mean. Um, they would have heard messages for many, many years. There would be people here today 
who are likely hearing this for the very first time. And in fact, if you see the word tithing, you might even call it tithing or something. You just don't know what it is. You've never heard anything about it. You're not practicing it. You know very little about it. And there would be likely everything in between. And even for those who have been Christians for a long time, and you know something about the topic, even within that body, of Christianity, there would likely be a number of different opinions or thoughts on what tithing is, what it isn't, whether it's relevant for the modern day church, whether it was just an Old Testament concept. So there would be lots of discussions that would go on for those who are familiar with it. So I want to begin this morning by just looking at a very simple dictionary definition of the word tithing. So this is a generic, basic definition that would be embraced for this word. So a tithe is simply a one-tenth part of something. So the word means one-tenth part of something. Money, animals, treasure, could be agriculture. Most often paid as a contribution to a religious organization or a compulsory tax to government. Today, tithes are normally paid voluntarily and usually contributed through cash, check, e-commerce, stock, etc., rather than in kind. So people don't normally bring in animals or agriculture to drop in the basket. That's not normally what we would do. Now, that was a process and a type of contributing, certainly in the Old Testament, and we'll look at that. But that's a basic definition for the word tithe. So in its most simplistic state, A tithe is simply giving one-tenth of something to someone or to some place, and it goes back thousands and thousands of years. And by the way, it is not exclusive to Judaism or the Christian church. It was practiced in other cults or organizations as well. So it's not something that's really, really new. Now, for the sake of the two messages that we're going to look at, what I'm going to do is I want to talk a little bit about the origin of tithing. Like, when, when did it first start? And what was it practiced like in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant? And then next week, we're going to look a little bit more on the example of the first century church, or the, the New Covenant Christian church, and uh, just see what some of their practices were like as well. So my hope in doing this is not only that it tries to answer those questions and maybe some others that some of you might have, but really my heart in all of this is to help you see the importance of generosity and to understand and recognize that the God of all creation, the God that we serve, is undoubtedly, immeasurably generous. And we see this throughout Scripture, the very heart, the very essence, the very nature of God is generous. And so regardless of what you feel or believe or think or how you might debate different terms like tithing, free will offering, and and we could have lots of discussions about those things, I think it's virtually impossible to deny That the God of all creation is generous. And perhaps his greatest gift of generosity is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. He provided his one and only son as the one that would die for the sacrifices 
for the sins of the world. We celebrated that this morning. So Father God in his very essence is generous. God is a giver. Therefore, it does make sense for his children to be givers as well. And I understand that giving, it's certainly not restricted to contributing finances. We can give of our time. We can give and should give of our skills or our talents. We can give emotionally. We, but we do also give out of the resources that we have. And I think that's important. So we're going to look at the first question that has more to do with, like, why do we give tithes and offerings? And where did it all start? And what does it emanate from? And so what I want to do is I want to, first of all, take a look at what I think is the oldest and likely the first example of someone actually giving a tithe, and it is found in the Old Testament. It's Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. Before we look at that and read that, let me just give you the quick context to the story so that you'll understand the text that I'm going to show you. In Genesis chapter 12, Abram took his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot and left his home country and traveled to Canaan. Shortly after arriving in Canaan, a, fam a famine struck the land and he and his family left for Egypt where they lived as, as foreigners. And from there they traveled to the Negev and eventually they ended up in a place called Bethel or Bethel where they pitched their tents. Now by this time the story tells us that both Abram and Lot had actually become quite wealthy and they had so many animals and they had been blessed so much in terms of their possessions that there wasn't really enough room on the land that they had to house everything and it was actually causing a family conflict. So if you're here this morning and you've ever had a family conflict, you're not alone because there's plenty of them uh, recorded throughout scripture. And this is one of them. And we, 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 we find out in the story that, that Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen are in conflict and, and they're, they're fighting. And it's, it's like having a large family in a very small house and it's not working all that well. So to try and resolve the conflict... Abraham and Lot found some more land and Abram, called Abram at the time, let his nephew Lot pick first and Lot picked a piece of land and Abraham chose what was left behind. In chapter 14, after a war broke out, Lot was captured and Abram had to rescue him. After mobilizing 318 trained men, Abram not only rescued Lot from captivity, he also took back all the plunder that had been confiscated by a king named Ketamer Laomer. So after having recovered all the goods, his nephew Lot, as well as the women and the other captives, Abram gave back a portion of the plunder he'd received through his rescue mission. And he did so by tithing or giving a tenth of it to the king of Salem, a man named Melchizedek who was also a priest of God at the time as well. So let's have a look at that part of the story, beginning with verse 17, and I'll read it for us and then make a few comments about it. So we read these words. After Abram returned from his victory over Ketamer Laomer and all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and a priest of God most high, 
brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. So he gives him a blessing. Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he'd recovered. So this is a really interesting Old Testament Bible story where I think we see recorded the very first example of a giving of a tithe, a giving of a tenth of something. And in this case, Abram gave away or tithed the tenth of what he'd recovered from this military exhibition to Melchizedek. Now, the story is quite significant, and we know that because it is retold or it's re-referenced in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. Now, in part, for the purpose of comparing the high priest, Jesus, with the priest Melchizedek. So in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4, it's referenced again. Consider then how great this Melchizedek was. And Melchizedek was, scholars believe that Melchizedek was really a like a foreshadowing of Christ. So he was a type of Christ. Jesus Christ being the ultimate high priest and the better high priest with the better or the newer covenant. That's what the book of Hebrews is about, about contrasting the two covenants and the superiority of the new covenant. Even Abram, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. So why did he do that? a very interesting story and that's an interesting question like why would he give a tenth of this plunder to this priest of God Melchizedek well it's kind of hard to know for sure but I think there's a piece in the story that gives us a little window of insight into Abram's heart and it has to do with two things it has to do with his response to the king of Sodom and the plunder that Abram had recovered, recaptured. And it also has to do with the fact that he gave this one-tenth tithe. So let's look at verses 21 through 23 for a moment. And I think we can discern a bit of an attitude in this particular biblical reference. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give back my people who were captured, but you go ahead and keep for yourself all the goods you've recovered. Abram applied to the king of Sodom, I solemnly swear to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a single thread or a sandal thong from what belongs to you. Otherwise, you might say, I am the one who made Abram rich. That's a very interesting response. So we see Abram, first of all, giving a tenth or a tithe to Melchizedek from the plunder that he recovered. And that it appears that he refuses to keep that which I guess he can rightfully keep. Because he wants the outcome of his life and his testimony to be one of trust in God and dependence upon God. 
And that's the most interesting verse, isn't it? Verse 23, we'll look at it one more time. I will not take so much as a single thread or a sandal thong from that which belongs to you. Otherwise, you might say, I'm the one who made Abram rich. Ladies and gentlemen, I think this story is a story about dependence. It's a story about worship and honor, respect. In the releasing of the one-tenth to Melchizedek, but that's also an act of dependence and trust. Because Melchizedek was a type of, a foreshadowing of the high priest Jesus. So it teaches us something about dependence. And then his unwillingness to take this plunder lest it look like someone else's provision was what provided for him. And it leads me into a very important life truth that I take from this story. And it comes in the form of a question. And I really want us to think about it this morning. So we got to go back to the question, if we can, Paul. The question right here. Thank you. Are you willing to give up that which could be yours? in order to trust in the one who wants to be yours. So I would suggest for your thinking, ladies and gentlemen, that one of the most foundational, most simplistic, value-based pieces of tithing or giving free will offerings or contributing or being generous, whatever the words you would like to use would be, would be trust, would be dependence. And I think every time you release something into that basket and every time you go out into the connection center and you use the debit machine, every time you use the push pay, whatever it is that you do, where you come in, you set up with the office, you want this electronic transfer of funds so that it consistently goes to God's work. You're essentially saying... I am releasing this to you, Father God, because you are my provider. You are my source of strength. You are the one I depend on. You are reinforcing, you are reaffirming your trust in and your dependence upon God. And maybe you can think of it this way. Tithing or generosity is not a penalty. It is a privilege and it is also a protection. It is a protection from self-reliance. It is an acknowledgement, an acknowledgement that there is more to this life than just stuff, money, things, possessions. There is, there is another life ahead. There is an eternal life. There is an unseen world. It's not just everything that we touch or feel, or earn, or spend, but you're saying there's a God in heaven who is truly my provider, and I'm placing my trust in him, and I'm placing my dependence upon him. And so we need to realize that when we contribute to God's work, God is not robbing us. He's not penalizing us. We, we don't walk around saying, well, my neighbor gets to work, live with a lot more money than me because he doesn't have to give any of it. And you know what? He also gets an extra day a week to mow the grass because he doesn't have to be here. God's not punishing us. 
He's not up there saying, I can't wait to make you live on less money and work on one less day. No, 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 no. That's not the... He's protecting us from self-reliance. He's protecting us from not being generous. He's protecting us from all kinds of things. I think that's in this story. I will not take as much as a sandal. Lest you say, I'm the one that made you rich. Because I want to be able to say that God is the one who provides for me. It's a wonderful story. A wonderful story. I am not suggesting that we are to pluck this story straight out of the Old Testament and use it for a passage for supporting tithing in the New Testament. I don't know that you can do that, but I don't know that it matters. Because either way, regardless of your belief about what happens in the New Covenant, we'll look at that next week, you cannot deny the fact that Abram was generous. He was honoring of Melchizedek. And he was more than willing to put his trust in God and his dependence in God. And I think that's really, really important. Very, very important. So what I want to do now is I just want to move beyond the story of Abram and Melchizedek. But that, that, that is a story that helps us at least understand where it first came from, where, where, where we see it emanate out of the Old Testament. But there were other ties that were a part of Judaism, and it was called the Law of Mosaic Tithing. And so I just want to talk about three different tithes very quickly that were in the Old Testament. Not necessarily, and quite frankly, impossible to be replicated in New Testament Christianity, but the heart and the spirit of the generosity that in the Old Testament was mandated by a law is to be equally demonstrated in terms of its spirit of generosity. So the first tithe that we can discover is what we call the Levite tithe. So every year, every Jew was required to give 10% of whatever he had as a tithe to the Levites so that they could administrate the governmental responsibilities within the theocracy. So the Levites not only carried out the religious responsibilities of the community, but also the judicial, governmental, educational functions as well. In other words, a portion of the tithe given by the average Jew was used for these sort of non-religious purposes in a sense. So the Levites were often musicians, administrators, architects, judges, teachers, scribes, doctors, those that we would call in our world today professionals. So the Levites, after having received the tithe, then the Levites would tie the portion of that tithe to the priests. All right, so that was the act of paying it forward or passing it on, which is, which is a wonderful concept. So the priests themselves were not required to tithe. So the Levites, a lot of people think, well, the, Le- the priests and the Levites were synonymous. Not really. Somewhere in, in Israel's history, there was a bit of a divide and, and the Levites and the priests started to take on some different classes and some different responsibilities. So the Levite would get the Levite tithe and they would pass a portion of it on to the priests. And then the priests would not have to pass a portion on for whatever reason. They didn't have to tithe. And so we see this Levite tithe. I think it's somewhat reflected in modern day taxation. 
So hopefully, I'm guessing, especially if you're a deacon, hopefully you're paying your taxes, okay, to the government. And there's plenty of them. And I think this year it was, was it well into May? You were working from January 1st well into May without taking a penny home yourself. Like I think in all total, they talked about 35 to 40% taxes that go on in our country. If you count all levels of taxes at the pump and everything else. So we pay our taxes and Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God what is God's. I think living today in 2017, we wouldn't probably say we have to replicate the Levite tithe because in essence, when we are giving of our taxes, this is helping to administrate the country and the province that we live. So interesting to note that virtually impossible to replicate that. The second tithe that was a part of the Mosaic law of tithing was what was called, and it was another 10%, it was called the festival tithe. And this would likely be a tithe that would be closest probably to the usage of the donations that come in here at Weka. So every year, every Jew was required to give another 10% of whatever he had as a tithe to help support the festivals and religious convocations of the nation. So every year, the Jews were required to participate in at least three very significant festivals as well as these other religious holidays and celebrations. And so they were required, after having given their Levite tithe for a lot of the governmental and those sorts of requirements, they were required to give also this extra 10% in the festival tithe to help support these religious events and celebrations. So... This is a decent comparable, I think, to what happens here at Weka. People give donations voluntarily. We don't charge a ticket price. We don't have membership dues. Every bit of money that comes in is given in terms of the donations. It's given by volunteers who choose to do it, which is amazing when you think about it. And it supports our weekend worship services. It supports grief share. It supports Alpha. It supports all kinds of different things, the celebrations, the services, the programs, all the things that we do to honor God, to worship him, to get to know him and make him known to the community that surrounds us and the city that we're in. And there are also uh, plenty of dollars that go through Weka to different parts of the world as well. So this would be somewhat similar to this particular tithe I'm not suggesting for a moment that we pluck this out of the Mosaic law of tithing and, and pluck it right down on top of New Covenant Christianity. I think that was more modeled by generous free will offerings, and we'll talk about that uh, next weekend. But, but this is really important. And it's important to note that hundreds of thousands of dollars that come in to Weka also go out through Weka to missionary works and missionaries and, and projects and it goes to our district office. And so it, it goes outside the walls of this local church, which is the way it should be. So very, very interesting. So the third tithe that was designated was called the benevolent tithe. So every third year, based on a seven-year cycle, every Jew was required to tithe an additional 10% of whatever he had to the poor, the widows, the fatherless, and the strangers. And just as a quick side note, 
not only these three tithes, but in addition to these three tithes, there was a yearly half shekel temple tax as well. Now, we don't have a, a, a Weka auditorium tax uh, yet, so you don't have to worry about that. But they had a half shekel temple tax as well as these uh, three uh, designated and uh, required tithes. So, so the benevolent tithe reflected the heart of God for those who were disenfranchised. Those who were disadvantaged in society. Those who were downtrodden. They'd come across difficult times. They never had a great chance at life. And they were, they were ostracized. Or maybe they were outcasts. But, but it's so interesting that the Mosaic law of tithing structured a system that would ensure that those who were less fortunate also had a chance. And I think this is reflective of the heart of God. So in a sense, I think this poor tithe or this benevolent tithe, it kind of reflected in a sense, maybe our modern day welfare, maybe unemployment insurance. It certainly reflects the benevolent fund that we have that also gives away and helps people who are coming across a difficult time in life. But it wasn't just the poor tithe that was legislated as a form of benevolence. If you were fortunate enough to have a field to harvest, you were required by the law to harvest that field in a circle, not a square. You had to leave the corners of that field unharvested. So that those who didn't have access to harvesting something could still come. And they could harvest from the corners of the field that you had harvested in a circle. Very, very interesting. If you had a, a bale of hay that dropped off the wagon on the way to the barn, you had to leave it there. You couldn't pick it up. You had to leave it for those who were less fortunate. And these were ways of mandating kindness and benevolence for those whose hearts had yet to be transformed by the reality of Christ in the new covenant. And so next week, we're going to look at the model, the example of the first century church. But ladies and gentlemen, may I just say this in conclusion. Regardless of the discussions that we have about tithing, about new covenant giving, about free will offerings, whatever terms you like to use, right from Genesis likely through to Revelation, we see the spirit of generosity spoken about and modeled in stories and examples of God's people. And I would just like to say that part of my hope and desire is that all of us would feel released, willingly, joyfully, sacrificially, to be involved in generosity. Generosity with time, generosity with talents, and also generosity with treasure. And if you haven't yet experienced the absolute joy and the wonder and the freedom of placing your dependence upon God and your trust in him by releasing funds on a regular basis into your local church and ultimately into God's work, I would just invite you to jump in the boat with us and to row together. And I think you'll discover that it does something for your relationship with your God as well. So let's bow in prayer.
at this time. Uh, again, I thank each of you for coming and listening. And I wanted to put out that challenge. I wanted to try and answer the beginning of that first question about why we do it in the first place, because it's a very good question. And we do it because we have examples of it in the Old Testament. We have examples of generosity, of collecting, of offerings. We have examples of immeasurable and liberal giving in the New Testament as well, the first century church. But most of all, we see it in the heart and the character of God as he demonstrates generosity in the world in which we live. So Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your generosity to us and may we adopt and embrace and emulate generosity in and through our lives. May we not be stingy or hoarders or refusing to trust in you as our source of provision, but may we progressively learn to entrust a portion of what you've allowed us to steward back into your kingdom and your work and to sow it into the lives of others and good works that are happening in our world. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand together. Thank you so much for coming today to be with us. And I really encourage you to come back next week. You're really going to enjoy the message. It'll be great. So God bless you. Pick up your children. Have a wonderful time. If you're new here, stop by the guest lounge and say hi to the volunteers. They'll give you a tour. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You can watch us live every Sunday at 11 a.m. Mountain through our Facebook page or by visiting us at weka.com. We invite you to be part of our online community by visiting any of the links in the show liner. If you're in the Edmonton, Alberta area, visit us at our West Edmonton campus on 199th Street or pop in for a coffee at the Weka Chapel located in the West Edmonton Mall.